So over the last year, uh, I have been going through um, a little bit of medical testing. Um, I don't want anyone to worry. It's really nothing major. It's more of just a minor inconvenience. I've been, I've been going through some medical testing to try and figure out why I have had chronic bronchitis uh, persistently in my right lung for two years has been the, the plan. And so one of the tests that I went through a couple months ago was called a methacholine challenge. I don't know if anybody's ever done a methacholine challenge, but it's essentially it's a test uh, of, for asthma to see if you have asthma. And, and Krista is a respiratory therapist, my wife, uh, um, who has administered this test. She has taken this test and she warned me as I was leaving the house. She said, just so you know, this is not going to be very pleasant experience. Because what they have you do, they give you this uh, plastic implement. It has a handle on it and then a tube that you hold up to your mouth and then you breathe through this tube for like several minutes at a time. You're, you're kind of inhaling this vaporized substance that I take it is meant to trigger an asthmatic attack if you have asthma. And so you hold this tube and you breathe for several minutes and then the respiratory therapist who's administering will say, listen, here's what I want you to do. On the count of three, I want you to take a deep breath in and then blow out all the air in your lungs. Just blow, blow, blow. Don't stop blowing until everything is out of your lungs. And then as soon as you're done, I want you to inhale as fast as you can. All right, so I want, you to, I want everyone to try this. We did this, Tim did a breathing test with us last week. I want us to try this one together because this is an awful thing to do. Okay, so here you go. So breathe, take a deep breath in and then exhale as fast as you can. Here you go. <gasps> exhale. And now inhale as fast as you can. And you do this over and over. Isn't that terrible? You do this over and over and over again. And after doing it like five, six times, like literally your head gets light and the room begins to cloud over and you get kind of dizzy because you are totally violating all of the principles that your body needs you to observe in order to breathe in a healthy way. You are, you're absolutely depriving your body of the oxygen that it needs in order to function in a healthy way. And your body begins to react and and collapse because when you don't respect the rhythm of managing inhaling and exhaling in the right way, everything begins to fall apart. You can't live in a healthy way unless you're breathing in an appropriate way. And that's what this series is all about. Tim Arnold introduced us to this metaphor of breathing last week as a, a way of, of pictorializing the tensions that we sometimes find ourselves living in. Tensions where we find ourselves caught between two ideals or two values or two ideas that both seem important and yet seem mutually exclusive, like inhaling and exhaling. You can't inhale and exhale at the same time. Yes, musicians, we all know about circle breathing. You're amazing and the rest of us can't do it. Normal people cannot inhale and exhale at the same time. They're polar opposites and yet you need them both in rhythm in order to be healthy. And so Tim talked about tensions that we experience like fun and seriousness. Where fun is a value for life. Life should be fun. I remember a preacher once saying that every follower of Jesus owes it to the world to be supernaturally joyful. A life filled with joy is important. But life is also serious and it's hard and it hurts sometimes. And you can't be fun all the time. Sometimes you have to be serious. Uh, I remember a, a roommate in university said to me, 
You know, Mike, he said, I've read all the stories, the biographies of Jesus all the way through. And you know, never once in the Bible does it ever say that Jesus ever smiled. Why would I want to follow somebody who was just overcome with seriousness, who never smiled? I think the Holy Spirit sort of inspired my answer because I looked at him. I said, you know, Mike, um, read the Gospels again. The Bible also never says that Jesus ever went to the washroom. But I think he did that several times a day as well. So... <laughs> but the point is, his point was, you can't be serious all the time either. You have to find a way to live in an appropriate rhythm. That's probably a bad image. But of the appropriate rhythm of fun and seriousness if you're going to live a healthy life. And the reason we're spending a month talking about this metaphor of breathing, inhaling and exhaling to manage these tensions is because they exist in our faith all over the place. And each week we're going to be looking at a new tension that we have to manage in our faith. And this week, the tension that I want to talk about is the tension that we experience between unity, you know, similarity, and diversity. The question being, when you form community around yourself, do you form community in a way that emphasizes diversity and maximizes the degree to which the people around you are different? Or do you emphasize similarity and maximize the way in which people are the same? And even as I ask that question rhetorically, I know that you're answering that question silently in your head because you have a bias. Because you instinctively gravitate towards one of those two options, either relationships of diversity or relationships of unity and sameness. Because we all have biases in such a degree that at times it's actually even hard to imagine how anybody else could see the world uh, in the other way, in differently than you. Like if you're a person who values unity, you can't even imagine why somebody would prefer diversity to unity. And I think... The way of biases of unity and diversity play out in our culture are really astounding. Because I think, to overgeneralize, that our culture biases towards diversity. We're a multicultural society. We're a society of religious pluralism. We celebrate difference and uniqueness and individuality. And you be the person that you are, so long as you're not hurting anybody else. The mantra of our culture is just live and let live. Just let people be who they are in all of their uniqueness and diversity to the degree that the only real sin in our culture, to overstate it, is the sin of trying to force somebody to conform to some external norm. Trying to squash their individuality, showing intolerance to their uniqueness. People are allowed to be who they are because we value diversity in culture. And yet in the church, to equally overgeneralize, in my experience, the church tends to bias towards unity, similarity towards sameness. It's not true of every church, but in the churches that I've been a part of and seen, we seem to prefer churches where everyone is just like us. They look like us, they talk like us, they walk like us, they live like us, they behave like us, they believe like us, they sound like us, they understand like us. Where people, where we get a sense when we're in the community, we get a sense that this is a place where I belong because everyone around me is just like me. That seems to be the value inside the church. And truth be told, both diversity and unity are actual biblical values. It's not that one's right and one's wrong. They're both right, and we need to experience both of them. In Psalm 139, the psalmist says this, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. 
I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. The psalmist says, you made me who I am, God. You made me this way. You crafted me in my mother's womb to be the person that I am. And everything you do is wonderful. And I know that. I know that you've created me to be a beautiful person that reflects your image. And I embrace that. It's a celebration of uniqueness and individuality, which leads to diversity. But jump to the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 4. Paul says this to the church. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Unity is the, is the word. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Paul says, remember, at the end of the day, you are one, you're united, you're unified. So preserve the oneness of the body. There's unity and diversity, and they're both matter. We need to experience both, like inhaling and exhaling. We need to keep them both together in rhythm, even though... It's hard. It's hard and messy and awkward to live in relationship with people who are wildly different than you. I mean, just ask two new moms who are good friends, but for whatever reason, the one for her own reasons is passionately committed to breastfeeding and the other for her own reasons is passionately committed to formula feeding. Those conversations, people get animated about that conversation and there's there's tension and conflict and messiness there ask two neighbors who generally get along great except when it comes to election time because they're both zealously committed to the ideology that is represented by their favorite political party and when the line when the lawn signs come out they are of wildly different colors from opposite ends of the political spectrum and it gets uncomfortable that's why we say you don't talk politics at parties just ask the world traveler who's in a culture that is so different than their own where everybody is different than everybody back home and they just have no idea what the rules are for engaging with the people around them or conversely the immigrant family who's moved into Canada into a neighborhood where nobody looks like them and nobody believes like them and nobody behaves like them just feel how awkward and tense and uncomfortable that can be. Just ask the married couple who both believe that as soon as dinner is done, those dishes should be cleaned, but they have wildly divergent views of the best way to stack a dishwasher. <laughs> it can get very tense. So I hear, you know, I've heard of couples who struggle in that <laughs> no it, that's why we retreat to these communities of sameness because it's so awkward and uncomfortable and tense to live in community where people are so different to you that's why this is my overgeneralization coming back to haunt me you can drive to toronto and go to chinatown or a gay neighborhood or you can drive through ontario and find enclaves of ethnic mennonites who have banded together in pseudo colonies so we can be with our people we like to be around our people. That's why we set up denominations so that we can divide ourselves racially and theologically and according to religious practice along lines so where we can be with people like us. Um, we experience it in our church all the time. The tensions that exist between people who are just plain different than each other. I mean, ask the guy who sent the email to say, hey, I'm really intrigued by your church and I enjoyed my Sunday there, but I hear you have 
female elders. Is that true? Because if it is, I won't come back because I want to honor God in everything I do. Okay, well, I guess there's a church up the street that would be a great fit. Or the, ask the family that um, just left the church because we don't practice the miraculous expressions of the Holy Spirit like healing and speaking in tongues and prophecy like they would want us to. Or ask the person who just left the church because we don't hold a, the same or an appropriate kind of doctrine about heaven and hell and the afterlife in, in their opinion. Or ask the person or the family who left the church because when they wander the halls, they don't see people who look enough and sound enough like them. They see people who are too different in age and stage of life and socioeconomic status and education and race. And they're just people are too different and I can't feel comfortable here. I go for coffee with the couple who says, we, you know, we enjoy the church um, but I want to know your view of what the Bible says about sexual orientation. Um, it's just, people feel, it seems, often like it's just too hard to live in community with people who are different than you. And so we retreat into these little communities of sameness because they're comfortable and they're safe. And we know that we fit in there because we're just like everybody else and we know how to fit in. We know how to behave. We feel the support and the strength of the people around us who believe exactly the same way that we do. And it, it just feels right to be around people who are like me. And, um, and what happens in that kind of environment is that we cluster around in communities of sameness and we end up sucking the life right out of the church. We give in to group think. And I mean, this is what happens. Research says to communities of sameness that you give in to group think and pride begins to set in because everyone agrees with you and so you must be right. And you begin to develop these rationalization systems where we can all convince each other that whatever objections may exist to our opinion or our practices, that they don't matter. And, and then we develop this tribalism that grows suspicious of people who aren't like us and begins to demonize them. And we try to force people to conform to our way of doing things. We get into this wagon circling thing where we live this protectionist, this defensive mentality of the world is out to get us. And we need to, and it's just ugly because... Um, that's what happens to communities of sameness. It's just not the way the, the Bible says the churches are intended to be. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, in a passage of scripture that goes under the heading in my Bible of unity and diversity in the body or in the church, it says this, just as a body, though one, has many parts, but in all of its parts form one body, so it is with Christ. Paul says, you see the way that it is with the church? There's one body, there's unity, there's solidarity there, but it, that solidarity is comprised of diversity of many parts. So, he says, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If we were all one part, where would the body be? 
As it is, there are many parts, but one body. Paul says what it means to be the church is to live a life of solidarity and unity with each other in the context of radical diversity that protects us from all of the dangers of these communities of sameness. See, the reason you get into this group thing and you get into this pride and all that is because all you have is one perspective to consider. There's no new information. There's no new experiences, no new data that, that is informing a, a broader perspective all you have he says if the whole body's an ear you can't see all you have is the data that an ear can provide which is important but it's not sufficient for a well-rounded picture of reality if all if the only sense you had access to was hearing you would know something of the world but a very little bit We need the diversity of body parts to provide the multiplicity of information and experiences in order to deepen our understanding and add richness to our spiritual experience and to keep us humble, to remind us that we don't know everything and we don't see everything and to keep us in a learning posture so we can continue to grow, to keep us um, to keep us gracious with each other because we know that not everyone sees things the same way, to fight the war against building these tiny little boxes that we stuff God in as we remake him in our own image because we all agree on what God is like and we just assume that must be true. Communities of diversity are ones um, that live in unity in the context of radical diversity. Those are the ones that are the healthiest communities You could possibly imagine when you get the inhaling of unity and the exhaling of diversity in exactly the right rhythm, you can live in the tension and manage it in a way that brings health. The question is how? How do you live that? How do you manage it? And in my opinion, I think the best way to think about how you live in the tension of unity and diversity is through a quote that was written by an otherwise unremarkable German theologian named Rupertus Meldenius in 1627. Tim quoted last week from the 16th century. I'll give you something from the 17th century, way more up to date. But Meldenius was alive during the 30 years war in Europe, the longest uh, uninterrupted uh, period of warfare in Europe's history, one of the bloodiest, most destructive eras, 11 million people, some estimates say, died in the war or because of the famine or the disease. <coughs> Excuse me, my chronic bronchitis. Um, and in the midst of that, the war was being waged, at least at the beginning, on religious terms. The Protestants and the Catholics were fighting for territory. And in 1627, Rupertus uh, Meldenius wrote a tract on Christian unity in which he said, And I quote, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. To me, I think Meldenius is onto something. In fact, I think Meldenius is just echoing the sentiments of Paul in Romans chapter 14, where Paul says, This in verse one, he says, accept the one whose faith is weak, who you think their faith is weak because they disagree with you about stuff. Accept the one who's without quarreling over disputable matters. See, Paul's writing the letter to Romans to a church that is on the verge of fracturing along ethnic and religious and theological lines. (coughs) Excuse me. 
On the one hand, you've got a community of Jewish Christians who grew up under the Mosaic law, the Jewish religious law that taught them, among other things, to eat a kosher diet and to observe the Sabbath, to not work on Saturdays. But they're living in community with a clan of Gentile Christians who didn't grow up under the Jewish law and who did not eat kosher and who feel no inclination to observe the Sabbath. They work seven days a week and it horrifies the Jews because these Gentiles are ignoring the clear teachings of scripture that a relationship with God is supposed to include a kosher diet and Sabbath observance. And the Gentiles are horrified that the Jews are going to try and observe or force these Jewish cultural practices on them as Gentiles who aren't Jews in the first place. They never wanted to be Jews. And Paul steps into this mix. He says, listen, I know there's tension between the diverse groups, but you have to learn to accept each other without disputing over, quarreling over disputable matters. Literally, it says, without arguing about opinions. They're your opinions, Paul says. They're just your opinions. They're what you think are right and wrong. And you shouldn't be fighting about it. What Paul does, and this is important to me, what Paul does immediately is he divides truth, at least religious truth, spiritual truth, into two categories of things that are indisputable and I would say essential and things that are disputable and I would say non-essential. He says not all truth is the same. There is some truth that's just not worth fighting about. And there are some things, Paul implies, that are definitely worth fighting about. Unity around essentials. Make sure that you all live in unity of thought and purpose around the core message of the gospel. That's what I would argue is an appropriate way to draw the circle around the stuff that is indisputable. (coughs) You live in unity of thought and purpose around the core message of the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. If you don't need to bring up an issue in order to explain why you believe in Jesus to somebody else, then it is not essential, right? This is what I think Paul's getting at, that um, a part of the gospel, I would argue, that is essential is that God is a God of love who created a world that is good. That is essential, Whether God created that world in six literal 24-hour days 6,000 years ago or whether he created the world over the course of billions of years through a process of biological evolution is not essential. I don't need to bring that up in order to explain to somebody the truth about Jesus Christ. Non-essential. That Jesus invites people to repent of the way they've been living and put their faith in him and follow him with their whole life. Essential to the gospel. Whether that means that you have to wear a tie to church on Sunday or whether you don't drink or dance or smoke or chew or hang around with girls that do, non-essential. I don't, we don't need to talk about those things in order to um, explain to somebody the good news. That's, see the filter that's at work there? If it's core to the good news about Jesus, essential. Unity is a mandatory. It's a must. Which means that if you're here this morning and you're just exploring faith, And you're in a place where for you, where you are right now, what you're comfortable with is to say, well, listen, that's your truth. And your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. And you believe what's good for you and I'll believe what's good for me. You do what works for you and I'll do what works for me and we'll live and let live and we'll not hurt each other. If that's where you're in faith, I just need to tell you that at some point, if you want to become a follower of Jesus Christ, you are going to have to commit to a certain core, essential group of teachings and truths and practices and behaviors that are essential to the Christian life. 
Not everything is gray. Some things are really black and white. And like Tim said last week, you just got to know that you know that you know that you know. And that's just, that's just real. That's the journey you're on of figuring out whether you can commit to those essential things. For those of us who have committed our lives to the good news about Jesus Christ, Paul says, your job is to preserve the unity and the bond of peace. That with everybody around you, who shares your commitment to salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, that Jesus is Lord, everybody who shares that commitment, your responsibility is to build the bonds of relationship with them, regardless of their gender, regardless of their race, regardless of their socioeconomic status, regardless of what color collar they work, where to work, white collar, blue collar, or no collar, um, regardless of their level of education, regardless of where they live, what kind of car they drive, regardless of, of anything else. If the people around you, the people around you share your commitment to Jesus Christ, you are, your responsibility is to build bonds of relationship with those people that foster peace, that nurture human flourishing in their lives, that become a source of love and joy and hope and peace and healing and life and abundance and beauty and equality and justice for all. Unity in essentials, unity. But in non-essentials, liberty. Everything that falls outside of that core message of the gospel, liberty. The freedom to believe whatever you believe is true. Um, and to not be forced to try and believe anything else. See, Paul says in this passage, uh, in Romans 14, that we each have a responsibility when it comes to the non-essentials. And the first responsibility we have in verse five is to be fully convinced of what we believe. He, he talks about the day issue, the Sabbath issue. And he says, one person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in your own mind. Whatever you believe about heaven and hell, whatever you believe about women in leadership, whatever you believe about sexual orientation, whatever you believe about those things, you need to do the hard work to study the scriptures in the context of diverse community, of a multiplicity of voices speaking into your life so that you can become fully convinced about what you individually believe about those things. That's your responsibility, to be fully convinced in your own mind, even if you're just going to be convinced that you don't know which is a perfectly legitimate conclusion to draw I, I was out for coffee with somebody who was a couple who was talking about our church and, and they had questions about what we believe about this or that or whatever and he said to me you'll have to excuse me he said I take a long time to sort some of this stuff out he said I grew up in an infant baptizing community and it took me 18 months of Bible study to come to the conclusion that I believe the Bible teaches believers baptism and I was baptized a second time in a Baptist church. And I gotta tell you, friends, I have so much respect for someone who will take 18 months of Bible study to sort out what they believe on a particular issue. That's somebody, a non-essential issue at that. That is somebody who wants to be fully convinced in their own mind and that's our responsibility, to be convinced and to be consistent. In verse 23, it says, but whoever doubts is condemned if they eat. This is the other issue, kosher diet. Because their eating is not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin. Paul says once you're convinced in your mind that you know what you think is right about a particular issue, you have to live consistently with that issue. 
You have to. That's your mandate. If you do 18 months of Bible study and decide that you think the Bible teaches infant baptism, don't let anyone ever pressure you to get baptized as an adult. That would be sin for you. Um, If you're someone who experiences same gender attraction, but you in your spirit believe that that is outside of God's desire for your relationships, that that's a sin, then for you, that's a sin. And you'd better make decisions that are consistent with the convictions that you have. You have to follow your conscience in faith or else it's sin. Note, by the way, that what Paul implies is that not everybody's perspective is going to be the same. So what might be sin for you may not be sin for me. And you can't tell me that it is. My convictions might be different. And I have to be consistent with my conscience in faith. We used to have these stupid fights as friends about whether Christians are allowed to swear or whether Christians should go to R-rated movies. There's no such thing as Christians should. The question is, what is the conviction in your spirit on this non-essential issue And then live consistently with it. That's the only issue. That's the responsibility we each have to be convinced and consistent. That's our responsibility to ourselves. Our responsibility to everybody else is to leave them alone. Paul says in this text that on non-essential issues, disputable matters, stuff where there's good evidence on both sides and people can come to a diversity of conclusions and so on, or diversity of practices or whatever, on those kinds of issues, Paul says there's two things you're not allowed to do. Number one, you're not allowed to try and convince somebody to change their mind and agree with you. He says, don't quarrel over disputable matters. Why do we quarrel over disputable matters? Because we're trying to convince the other person that we're right. That's why we do it. Because we're insecure, actually, I think, because we've invested too much in this belief and we think that we have to be right about this or else God's going to be displeased with us. And if somebody else thinks differently, then maybe we're wrong and that makes us insecure. So we have to convince everybody to agree with us. That's how I grew up. That's how, who I was. I remember in university having a conversation with a friend who's, we were agreeing that Christianity was in part a faith system. And if it was a faith system, it meant you had to believe things. And if you were going to believe things, we were going to believe them 100% of the way. And if I'm going to believe them 100% of the way, then I'm going to fight for them to the death. And Paul says, no way. If it's a non-essential issue, if it's something that is not core to the good news about Jesus Christ, you're not going to fight about it at all. You are not ever going to try and convince somebody to agree with you. Last last couple of weeks, uh, somebody showed up at the church with a, a Bible and a letter and a tract to try and convince us as a church that the King James Bible of 1611 is the only authentic, God-authorized, inspired English translation of the Bible that every other translation of the Bible is leading people away from Christ into error and sin. Paul would say, that's not your business to try and convince other people of the thing that you are convicted of. You should be convicted and you should live consistently. Go read the King James. But you cannot convince. Don't quarrel over disputable matters. The second thing you're not allowed to do is to treat people with contempt. He goes on to say, one person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Listen to this. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. For God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? Paul says, listen, 
Do not treat people with contempt. Do not belittle them. Do not mock them. Do not treat them like they're worthless or irrelevant or stupid because they disagree with you. You are not allowed to look down on somebody and make fun of them because they disagree with you. When I got home, so this thing with the King James Bible, I took a picture of him, posted on Facebook. I got home and Krista put her finger in my face and said, you're the same as him. He tried to convince you to change your, that he was right and you were wrong but then you made fun of him for believing differently than you. And she was absolutely right. Shame on me for treating someone with contempt just because they believe something differently than me. You're not allowed to judge people. To judge is to condemn them, to suggest that they are somehow out of alignment in their relationship with Christ, that they may not even be saved. I remember a couple years ago when a pastor named Rob Bell had the audacity to write a book that suggested that maybe God loves everybody so much that he might want to save all all of us. There was another prominent pastor who tweeted in response, farewell, Rob Bell. This declaration, you're no longer a part of the Orthodox Christian community. Uh-uh. You cannot judge somebody because their view on hell is different than yours. You cannot try and convince someone to agree and you cannot con- treat them with contempt or judge them because they disagree. In fact, Paul says later in the text, you know your opinion, keep your mouth shut. Keep it between you and God. It is none of your business what somebody else believes about a disputable matter. Until they ask you your opinion, it is none of your business and it is none of their business what you believe because he says, they're not your servant. They don't answer to you. They don't have to justify their beliefs to you. They don't have to give an answer to you. You're not in authority over them. They're Christ's servant, not yours. And they will answer to Christ and so will you. And guess what? We all have got some of it wrong and all of it, we've all got some of it right. And one day we're all gonna stand before Jesus and explain the parts we got wrong and the parts we got right. We're all gonna do it. And nobody's gonna have an advantage. And guess what's more? Paul says, God's already accepted them. That if they agree about the essentials of the faith, God's already embraced them and loved them and said, yeah, you're a part of my kingdom. And it's not going to bear any impact on eternity, whether or not they believed in evolution or six-day literal creation. It doesn't even matter. It doesn't affect their relationship with God one little bit. So Paul says, be convinced and consistent. Know your opinion and then zip it. Keep it between you and God. Could you imagine what would happen If we treated each other with so much respect that we refused to try and argue each other down, convince each other that you're wrong, coerce each other to agree, or make fun of each other for disagreeing. Could you imagine if we would learn to just keep our mouth shut about our opinions that nobody's asked us for? The difference that would make, Paul says in Romans 4, people speak evil of the gospel because of the way they see folks treating each other in the church over these kinds of dumb issues. Paul says, why would you ever divide the body over stuff like this? Instead, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. The only responsibility you have to each other is to love. The first word Paul uses is the word accept. The last word Paul uses in this passage is the word accept. Welcome. Invite into friendship. Lavish with generous hospitality embrace each other even though you disagree about stuff that doesn't matter even though you're different than each other embrace each other don't tolerate each other to tolerate is to endure 
without repugnance. It is to plug your nose and to stiffly put your arm around someone to endure their otherwise undesirable presence for the minimum amount of time that you have to. People know when they're being tolerated. Don't tolerate each other. Embrace each other in love. And love always only ever looks like the cross. Like the decision to, in humility, consider everyone else to be more important than me and to live my life as a servant to serve them in their best and ultimately to lift them up instead of putting them down, to extend them mercy instead of judgment, to do what Andy Stanley said and always trust that they're for us, not against us. They're not the enemy. They're not evil. They're just different. They're a fellow journeyer in faith and they're just trying to figure it out differently than we, to, to extend love to until we bleed, until we're willing to suffer and die to ourselves, to our agenda, to our status, to our ego, to our need to be right so that the love of God will flow through us to them and bring healing and hope and restoration into people's lives. That is the responsibility we bear to those especially who share with us the common conviction that Jesus is Lord, regardless of the other ways in which they're radically and wildly different than we are. We share the responsibility to love. That's what Jesus said. They'll know you by your doctrinal orthodoxy. No, they'll know you by the uniformity of your doctrinal agreement. No, they'll know you by your commitment to specific religious practices. No, they will know you by your communities of sameness. No, they will know you by your love. By this, all people will know that I have sent you when you love one another. That's the point. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. I want to invite the band back to the stage to sing a song that reminds us of those seasons in our lives and those seasons of time when we grapple with these issues, when we grapple with stuff that we feel is important, when we grapple with the right thing to believe or the right way to practice our faith or when we just grapple with what it means to be faithful to following Jesus Christ, when our minds are filled with questions and doubts and we're looking for answers and we want certainty and truth, the song reminds us that the only truth we need and the only truth we need to share is the truth that we need him more than we could ever imagine. Let this song recalibrate the focus of your heart and life as we learn to breathe with each other, unity living in the midst of diversity on the basis of love for the sake of Christ.